I'm gonna go low this time. Okay, okay, okay. That was good. Wow. Jinx, that was really good. Okay. Okay, you guys, we do not rehearse that beforehand. Off the cusp, originals. Welcome to Bring on the Books. I am Allison Winslow. And I am Bryn Case. If you are joining us for the first time, hello. If you are joining us for the second time, hello too. We have a little doozy of a chapter for you guys today. We learn a lot about different people. We meet so many new people. There's a lot of character development as well as who invited, I don't know, the addition of like five new characters. Yeah, and like so many subplots. Yeah, so last chapter we talked about Molly and how he is dead. And he's trying to find these pictures that can change the fate of the Sri Lankan Civil War. And in this chapter... They are found. They are found. Which is big. Big, but not seen all the way. No, not fully seen. And I feel like the major distinction for me between chapter one and chapter two, if you're a new listener, is that chapter one introduced us to a lot of the elaboration that we get in chapter two on Mm. themes, concepts, character development, etc. Yeah, I agree. Let's dive into it. Let's dive into it. So chapter two starts and there's a lot of tension. Dr. Renee confirms that Molly has amnesia and that it eventually will come back at some point. We get a lot of information from Dr. Renee and most of it is bad news, I feel like. So we learn that Molly can go on the fast track system to walk into the light and she kind of gives a rundown of what he needs to do. He's very adamant that he can change nothing, which is in direct opposition to what Sina has been telling him. She also gives insight into the Mahakali and says that it feeds on lost souls and that lately it has been growing fat. So we get the impression that this in-between place is getting really full and they're trying to like empty it out of people. And she says that if you stay in the in-between, you can become a Yaka or a Prita or a ghoul, or a slave to one of them, so not good. So the more you stay in those places, the more likely you are to become a servant of darkness, it seems. And for me, I was like, what is a Prita? It was, it was kind of hard for me to conceptualize what all these different terms were. And I found out it's a hungry ghost. Oh. So basically, he's just going to turn into a more desperate kind of villain version of what he already is. Oh, that's not Something good. like Cena, but not okay. as powerful. Okay, that's not good. Apparently, if there are too many ghosts in the in-between, it starts to affect the people in the real world in a bad way. And we see this come up again later on in the chapter. Molly isn't having any of this, and he is just, like, constantly interrupting her and trying to poke holes in her argument. And when Dr. Renee is kind of done talking, Cena cuts in and he demands to speak and a crowd of spirits kind of gathers and listens to him and he talks about how he's can't forget what has happened and how forgetting leads to just I guess more of the same things and if they want to change they have to remember what has been going on and when Renee is like can't change anything he's like I can whisper to people in real like who are alive Which I feel like is powerful to an extent, but I'm also kind of 
in my head shaping Cena to be this kind of desperate figure. Oh, yeah. Like, he seems on page 96, it really seems like his ulterior motives are revealed when he says in a sudden outburst, the death squad that killed me, it killed you, Molly. There are six men responsible for our murders, and if you help me, I will make them suffer. Yeah, he's definitely out for revenge. He talks a lot about how revenge is his right and that they need to have revenge in order to, like, be at peace. So when he's talking to, I mean, the scene you're describing, when he's talking to all this crowd of people, it mm-hmm. kind of seems like to me he's just going on, like, a lonely man's soapbox in a way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as he's talking, who should arrive but the Mahakali? And everyone ran. No, everyone didn't run. Everyone got eaten. They wish they could have run. They wish they could have run. So the Mahakali arrives and it sounds disgusting. It has like people's faces in its belly who it's eaten and it's just like gross. And it eats everyone in the crowd and then it just disappears. But before it disappears, a very interesting thing happens. What is that, Bren? A pronoun is addressed. (gasps) And we realize that this creature is a female. Yes. Dr. Renee asks, you work for him? To Sina. And Sina is like, I work for her. The Mahakali is a woman? A female? I don't, I don't know if we can call her a woman. I A, a feminine creature, yeah. maybe? I am interested to see why Karuna Tilaka made the Mahakali a female. When the Mahakali leaves, Dr. Renee asks if Sina's working for her, and he just says that he's fighting against the light and against forgetting. Dr. Renee's like, okay, whatever. We can let Molly decide for himself what he wants to do. And when they go to find Molly, he's gone. And he's trying to figure out what's going on with the people in his life. So he uses the Mara tree to go to Rechacado, Kasim, and Elsa, who are at his apartment. And Jackie answers the door and lets them in, and they immediately search for the boxes under his bed. As they're looking around, Molly thinks to himself about, like, the change that he sees in his room. He says, quote, both were around your neck when your neck was finally snapped. Your neck was snapped? By who? Who said that? And it sounds like he's kind of getting his memory back a little bit of his death and, like, how he was killed. But do we, like, trust this information? I don't really know. I don't think I do. Okay. And I'm going to tell you why. Because on page 39, Cena says that he was, and I quote, thrown off the roof by a dead squad and that he saw this happen. Oh, Yes. And so then when we have on page 104, Molly narrating and he says that his neck was snapped as if it's this like memory he's regaining. Yeah. There's conflicting stories here. Mm. Very conflicting stories. His neck could have been snapped and then he could have been thrown from the roof. Okay, I definitely thought about that. Or his neck was snapped like as he fell. I also thought about, though, how memory is fallible and Mm -hmm. he died. So he did die. is he capable of understanding his own mm. death? I also, it's such a traumatic instance. Like, can you really trust your own memory? I don't know. Because things can be blurry. So that was interesting. 
I don't know why it takes them so long to find the photos, but they're interrupted before they can by Dee Dee and Dee Dee's dad, Stanley, who basically kicks the cops out. And Jackie and Dee Dee kind of leave suspiciously very fast. And we find out that they are going to Molly's Ama's house, which yes. is where he moved the photographs. Yes. And why they could not find the photos where they assumed they would be. Yes. Yeah. We get some insight into why Elsa and Molly started working. And she tells them that they will pay all of his gambling debts if he sells them his photos. And she's very interested in the ones only from the year 1983. And that date comes up a lot. He agrees to start selling pictures to them. And throughout this section, there's a lot of questioning about which side Molly is on. And we've already had kind of this questioning, but Molly kind of seems to give answers a little bit. He says, I am on the side that wants to stop Sri Lankans dying this way. But take that as you will, because later he says that he's on the side that pays him. So we're still really confused as to Molly's intentions with selling these photographs, taking these photographs, what he wants politically, personally. It's hard for me to not feel like he's fueled by ego Mm. because he seems very wishy-washy on morals. In basically every instance we hear of him photographing something horrific, he doesn't even seem to think twice about taking a picture of it. So it kind of seems like maybe he's purely driven by the fact that he knows he's good at his job. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to tell with him. It's really hard to tell because one answer will seem so sincere, but then the next he'll be joking. And they talk a lot throughout this chapter about how, like, jokey Molly is and how he kind of creates stories and events. You just, like, can't trust what he says. We're basically instructed not to trust what he yeah. says. Yeah. So it makes all of this so much harder. Yeah. Molly meets Kugaraja, and he calls him Kuga, so maybe we can just call him Kuga. I think we should because his name is pretty difficult. His name is pretty difficult, so we're just going to call him Kuga from now on. They ask him to set up a meeting with a one Colonel Gopalaswamy, but I'm just going to call him Colonel G because his name is very long. Colonel G is a leader in the LTTE, and Elsa and Kuga think that he can provide them with protection for an orphanage and clinic that they have in different cities, and Molly very hesitantly agrees to set up a meeting. They pay him, and Elsa tells him not to tell anyone about anything. She's very adamant about that, so kind of suspicious. She seems like she really wants to have the control in this chapter. Mm, Yeah, and she does not get it. Ever. Ever. Not in one instant. She thinks she has the power, and then the prime minister comes in and is like, you do not have the power. So we cut back to Dee Dee and Jackie outside Molly's mom's house, but Stanley, the cops, and Elsa are all already arguing out front. We get more information about Dee Dee and Molly's relationship. They were hooking up, which we kind of knew, in secret, obviously, and they would argue all the time. Overall, it seems like a very dysfunctional relationship. As everyone is arguing out front, Dee Dee and Jackie sneak out back and they get to the box. Everyone joins them and they find a white shoe box with envelopes labeled with the different face cards, Royal Straight. And Stanley tells Jackie to give them to him, but Jackie ends up dumping all the envelopes onto the table for everyone to see. And then we find out that Molly told Dee Dee, Jackie, and this Clarantha de Mel about the pictures at like a party. And this party sounded crazy. This party sounded 
insane and that actually brings me to a great point last time i asked you guys what the hell jackie's silly pills were and on page 160 they are prescription medications that she has been dished from her psychiatrist who seems more like a friend shady than a professional yeah so Jackie and Molly and a few other of the guests try to have a seance, and one of the people says the name of Sina Patriana, who is, we believe, Sina in the afterlife that Molly meets. And he tells a story about how he's a, Sina is a boy who joined the JVP and was taken out by the Minister of Justice, Cyril, and his death squad. This guy, it's just really interesting. The guy tells him that, Cena's dad tells him that he's cursing his family and that the crow man can't protect his uncle, who's the minister of justice. And we have no idea who the crow man is. We just know that this is adding massive character development to who Cena is, because this is the first time that we're learning about Cena detached from Cena telling us who he is. This is the first time we're hearing that he was a campus communist this is the first time we're hearing that he joined the jvp the first time we're hearing that he was taken out by an uncle's death squad like this Mm -hmm. is some pretty big character development and i feel like it's from a third party so it might be reliable actually do learn who the crow man is later molly goes and asks some of the people like and he is like kind of a sorcerer charm man in the village who makes charms to protect wealthy influential people he also seems to mediate between yes. living and dead to people's relatives yes there's a scene it's like where a psychic Yeah, there's a scene where he actually accepts payment in order to speak with an alive person and their dead father and to kind of mediate a conversation between the two of them where it's clear to the audience that he's not even being truthful with the delivery of the conversation, Yeah, which is pretty hilarious. It's pretty funny. But yeah, we get the sense that the Crow Man is influential a little bit kind of powerful a little mystical so after we get the scene at the party we cut back to jackie passing around the queen envelope first and it's full of pictures of burning buildings and burning people and what's important about these photos is that they show the identity of the people in the mob doing the burnings and the killing and one of the people is Bilal who we met earlier the guy who was the butcher with the cleaver mm-hmm. and as they're looking at these photos Molly mentions that Kasim and Richagado are outside in their car arguing about what to do and they don't notice the car full of men who are neither cops nor army personnel and this car's driving up and there is a demon on the hood of the car Back inside, Elsa explains that the center there where she's working are building a case against the perpetrators of the 1983 riots and killings and that they have to put the names to the faces of the people who are in the mob that day. And these photos are central to that. As they're fighting over who should get the photos, seven men enter the room and in walks Minister Cyril, the Minister of Justice, 
the man who was responsible for igniting the progroms, which are the riots and killings of 1983, and he's the sixth name on Cena's list. This guy's a bad guy, he's by a, the way. The demon that was sitting on the hood of the car enters the room also. And the demon that's on the roof of the car is actually supposed to be the minister's ghost. Yeah. Who kind of protects him, watches over him, and seems as cryptic and bad as he is. Yeah. Minister C walks in and sees all the photos that Molly took. He's in one of the photographs. He's in the photo of the woman on fire that Molly took and talked about in the previous chapter. He had that conversation with the woman who... We talked about being dumped like gasoline and set on fire, and the minister is in the background of the photo that Molly took. So there's clear evidence that the minister was just sitting and watching this happen. So it seems like, which this is actually really interesting to me because my dad listened to the first podcast and he texted me right away and he was like, have you not considered that this guy might be photographing war crimes? And the reason why people can't see is because that would provide the identification of the people that were committing these war crimes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, how could we not have thought of that? Yeah. And now we're sitting here and the minister of justice has these photos in his hand that identify him as being witness to war crimes. Yeah. And and committing them. a, A perpetrator of war crimes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Basically... Molly was unintentionally or intentionally working against the prime minister. And now he has a hold of all these pictures. And we don't know where the negatives are at this Mm. point in the chapter. So it seems like the prime minister is just going to get to walk off with a get out of jail free card and have all of these photographs because in this scene he strong arms everyone in the room yeah jackie tries to sneak out with the box of envelopes but is stopped and minister c takes all of them and leaves and the creepy ghost follows him so he has all of the photos right now and molly says i know that these photos will never see the light of day again i need to find the negatives i need to figure out where i put them because he can't remember He does say, though, that he knows they are somewhere close and somewhere obvious. Yes. That's his new mission, to try and find the negatives. Once Minister C and everyone leaves, Molly follows the Bens, which with the minister and the creature on the hood. And they talk about a lot of different things, like the Sri Lankan flag and how spirits were first born. Kind of interesting stuff if you want to go and read them. But what seems most important throughout their conversation is this idea of nakath, which seems to be the belief that timing is everything. And the creature asks Molly what he thinks of the year 1948, whether it's auspicious or suspicious. And he gives the name of five countries that were all born in 1948. Burma, Israel, North Korea, apartheid South Africa, and Sri Lanka. The chapter ends by saying, quote, it doesn't matter if Molly Almeida believes in Nakath or not, because it appears that the universe most certainly does. What do you make of that, Bryn? I think this is, I'm really glad you brought this up, because when I'm reading, I'm like constantly thinking of themes. I'm constantly trying to see parallels. And I think that conspiracy theories and mythics have played a substantial role in this chapter. And mm-hmm. I think this is actually a great example of that. This is on page 142, if you guys want to go back and 
read exactly what's said, but basically this demon and Molly in ghost form are having this conversation and he's being introduced to this kind of theory of war, which Allison's talking about, where Mm -hmm. the idea is that these five countries all fell into war because they were, quote, born in 48. Yeah. So that is not only... I mean, that kind of strikes me as a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, more of like a mindset, because they talk about this idea of Nakoth, and Molly brings up like Buddhism, and I think a couple other religions that all like have different names for this. Astrological signs, like people Mm. believing that like what sign you are and when the moon and sun what position it was on your birthday has an effect on your life and who you are like it's kind of the same idea but just with countries so it might be something of that genre if not necessarily conspiracy yeah it's definitely like mystical and it goes beyond religion Mm -hmm. but stays inside some interesting possibility yeah Yeah, like some supernatural, mystical understandings of how the world works. I found their whole conversation really fascinating. I did too. I think it added, it kind of just provides, for me at least, more context to the world they are living in. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, I I wouldn't describe it as gloss, and I wouldn't describe it as like imminent information we need to know. I would put it in a middle ground it's context. In between the two. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Context. Yeah. It's context of how they think the world that they're living in, how it operates. And I think it's really interesting to follow Molly as people that don't have any connection to Sri Lanka. I think it's really interesting to follow him as he's talking to all these completely different people. Yeah. And seeing kind of their beliefs, what they, mm-hmm. what the culture, what parts of the culture they have absorbed, what they haven't absorbed. Yeah, because like we see the top of the top of with the Minister of Justice and even he is going to this guy, the Crow Man, to get protection against assassinations and curses and all that stuff. And then we also see like the lowest of the low, like in the different classes, how they mesh and how they kind of contradict each other and their beliefs and understanding of what's going on in the world is just fascinating. And weirdly enough, which I think this is an important piece that we need to recognize in order to fully understand Molly as a dynamic character, he respects them all. Yes. Like, never once does he come across someone who's trying to explain something to him and he's just an asshole. I mean, I feel like the only person he's really jabby with is Dr. Renee. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. He respects every, like the people of all classes. And listens. And listen. Yeah. And is open to what they're saying. And he does definitely has a critical mind of like not just falling in with like falling in with the sheep of like following along but he's open so molly is like about to leave the car and he as he's leaving he offends the creature and the creature threatens molly by saying that he'll be watching him so i don't know i feel like the creature is coming back as molly's leaving the car he is 
abducted by Renee. And Renee is like, you got to get your ears checked, man. So they go back to like that waiting room area that he first woke up in. And they have a discussion about God and whoever created the earth. And Renee says, quote, we should know the soul of the creator instead of arguing over her name, end quote. And I thought that was a unique choice to have Renee call the creator or God a her. And I would like to point out that is the first sentence in the entire book where God is capitalized. Yeah. So Renee tells Molly that in order to know the creator, one must know themselves. And that's a key part of the ear test. So he's taken down to the room to check his ears. And as they're checking, they question whether he has killed anyone. And Molly's like, what? I have never killed anyone. And Renee is like, are you sure about that, bud? We are clearly led to believe here that Molly is a murderer, but the way that it's phrased kind of leads us to believe that maybe, like, a picture he took ended up killing someone. Mm -hmm. Like, I could kind of see this as a rephrasing of, oh, you didn't kill someone with your own hands, but a picture that you took gave an identity, and Mm -hmm. then that identity was wiped off the face of the earth by people that had something to prove. Yeah, or I was also thinking that's definitely one way of looking at it. Another way I was thinking of it was that, like, he was complicit in people's deaths and he didn't really do anything about it, and so therefore he is a part of their death. Because if you think about it, if we kind of backtrack a little bit to speaking about the prime minister being in his bends watching things happen and being in pictures and watching war crimes happen he wasn't the only one sitting there watching yeah molly was molly was too yeah so how does that really make molly any better yeah i mean the only difference was that molly was taking these pictures but he was just as complicit i mean maybe you could argue that the minister was like wanted these things to happen and was like egging them on Ben whereas Molly was an observer but it doesn't mean they both weren't still complacently watching people die and sitting behind the comfort of a camera or a car or some distance yeah so when the exam is done Molly is left with a leaf that reads deaths 39 ears blocked sins many moons five So Renee explains that his soul, Molly's soul, has been killed 39 times and that he has unpaid debts. I also thought that this was really interesting because his ears are blocked and we learned a few pages earlier that his the ear check is the way to get to know yourself. So if his ears are blocked there's a block in his ability to understand himself, which would then mean there's a block in his ability to understand the creator or God. Which is a block to the light. Which is a block to the light. So it seems like the only, it's starting to seem like all these things are kind of piled up in a linear formation where he needs to get through these issues of religion. He needs to get through these personal issues in order to save the situation he's currently in. Yeah, no, definitely. And I thought it was interesting her talking about these unpaid debts that he has. And he comes back and he says that his pictures are his unpaid debt, that 
he needs to figure out where these pictures are. And as Molly tries to remember if he's killed anyone, instead of, like, having that information come to his mind, he suddenly remembers where his negatives are hidden. So Molly tells Renee that he wants to go back to Cena and learn how to whisper to people in order to get his negatives found. And Renee warns him that Molly is damaged and that he will be taken by the Mahakali. Molly argues that everyone he knows is working for a Mahakali, so why should he care? The next section I found really interesting. We get backstory into who Minister C is, and we learn that his father was a, quote, honest politician who genuinely cared about the people he fought for, but he was kind of, like, run into the ground, and he was sued by a lot of people, basically punished for doing good. Mr. C sees this and it really alters how he operates politically and we see that he has no problem bribing people, doing wrong things, committing war crimes. It completely ignoring a moral compass. Yeah, you know, little things like that. Yeah. Um, Minister C believes that he's still alive after five, yes, five assassination attempts because of the crow man. And at this point, we're like, who is this crow man? And lucky for us, we get to meet him in the next section. Molly finds Cena at the cemetery and he's like, I want to learn how to talk so I can talk to Jackie and tell her where the negatives are. Cena takes him to see the crow man, who we have learned a lot about. They go to this hut and they see the crow man communicating with the dead father on behalf of his daughter, kind of the mediator, not telling the full truth, but taking money. and He's basically telling these people what they want to hear so that he can have the money. But he is communicating with the dead people. Yeah. He's just not really delivering what they're actually saying. Yeah. So I guess when he doesn't have his glasses on, he can see dead people and talk to them. So that's how he's able to communicate. And he's like one of the only people who can do this. He can see Cena and he brings up that Cena promised him an army. And he sends a postcard. Molly's like, I need to talk to this girl Jackie will you help me and the crow man uh they kind of strike a deal and the crow man sends a postcard to Jackie telling her to come the next day in return for his help and Molly has to help bring him an army then in the next section we get insight into Jackie and Molly's relationship and it sounds like they started out as like good friends but she fell in love with him and it kind of got awkward after that she sounds like a nice person though she sounds like a really nice person and a consistent character. Molly's father, we learned, died in the U.S. while on the phone with Molly. On page 95, there's a quote that says, as he is trying to forget things, he says, how scared you were on your first assignment for the army, how hurt you were when your father left, and how disappointed you were to wake up in the hospital after overdosing which I feel like is insane character development on Molly's part because now we have him as someone who also tried to commit suicide, but then further context is added, which I believe is what you're talking about, on page 162, where we actually see a picture painted of 
Molly on the phone yeah. with his father, kind of reading his father his rights while he's on his deathbed, just yeah. being like, this is everything I ever wanted to tell you. And we find out that his father died of cardiac arrest while on the phone with, with Molly. Molly. And that led his aunt, his auntie, to want him to stay away from the funeral. It led his family to not be picking up his calls anymore. Yeah, it cut him off from his biological family other than his mom. I mean, it seems like there's some sort of guilt on his part and belief on his family's part that what he said to his father is what ended up killing his father. Yeah. Which is obviously so unfair. Yeah, because he was on his deathbed and... I would feel similar yes, in that situation. But I think it also needs to be acknowledged that this was a, a fraction of a father. This was really oh. not a dad, a father figure, a anything valuable. I would actually say that he not, o- yeah, not only didn't add anything to Molly's life, greatly took away from it. Yeah, we, we get the sense that he was like a financial backer in a lot of ways but not an emotional, like, presence in Molly's life at all. It Only in a negative way. It really seems like he had the son that was born and didn't really want the son to be what he ended up to be. Yeah. Which, in the first chapter, I feel like we're kind of given that information and then kind of led to believe Molly doesn't really care about it, that he just hates his dad. But I feel like in this chapter, we're, we see that Molly's, like, torn up about it. Oh, he feels so much guilt. He's obviously hurt. You get, when he's on the phone with his father, like, it's gut-wrenching. It's gut- Hearing him talk to his father and, like, he knows that his dad is going to die soon and he still feels the need to say these things to him. And we also get context to a completely divided home, both religiously and emotionally, because even early in the chapter, we learned that... And we learned that his father had written to Molly every birthday, giving him advice and saying that he was sorry, but that his mom would take these letters and destroy them before Molly could find them. And I kind of got the sense that Molly didn't believe his dad, when he was telling him these things at first, and maybe now he does, but it, it's just really sad. It's really sad, and I feel like there's a whole other underlying religious discussion to this family dynamic that I want to touch on later, so I'm going to let yeah. you finish. Yeah, okay. Jackie finds the address book that she was told to find by the Crow Man, and in it, she finds the same symbols that were on the envelope next to like people's names and numbers and it looks like she's trying to decide whether to call one of the numbers or not and molly is like i wish i could talk to her and tell her not to call any of the numbers before molly can like really try cena shows up and tells molly that they got to go do a job and we learn that this thing called verum is the currency and it's kind of like coco you know the movie coco yeah when they need the people who are dead need people who are alive to like share their stories and like say their name in order to like be alive in the afterlife this is a children's disney movie for anyone who is not familiar with coco yeah go watch it it's a great movie it it deals a lot with themes similar to this of life and death and what happens after you die and culture and continue yeah Yeah. so it's kind of like that where if people pray to you 
then you get Verum and you can use that kind of to power up in a way. We learn that the Crow Man gets Verum and the Crow Man gives Verum to people who make a deal with him, basically. So the Crow Man sends Molly on an assignment so that he can get Verum and Molly and Cena go and tag team and complete the assignment. And but yeah, that's the end of the second moon. And also, we are like halfway through the book. I want to continue our discussion of how the theme of religion plays into this book. Yeah. And then I think we should probably dive into questions. Are you good with that? Yeah, I'm good with that. I want to hear what you have to say. I feel like the discussion of religion is a primary integral aspect of this book. On page 91, Molly asks, is God unable to stop evil or unwilling? Mm -hmm. So we see just like the last book, he's still going back and forth on is God good? Is who is God? But at this point, he has acknowledged that there is a God. And we are given context on why he might think these things. On page 100, we read, Praying to God is like asking a car why it had to crash, says your dada in one of his arguments with your ama, who's his mother. Many of us will die in car crashes, he says, and every fool believes it will happen to someone else. These arguments ended up as soliloquies and happened on Sundays, right before your ama dragged you to church. So there's a huge religious divide in this household where this child is being forcefully fed both religion and, I mean, as English majors, we know what a soliloquy is. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's Shakespeare. Yeah. It's basically yeah. just a long, for those of you that don't know, it's a it's a rant. It's a it long a rant. rant where you don't let anyone else speak. Imagine that right before your mom says, hey, pal, we're going to church. Yeah, and then having to go sit through church and listen. I feel like he had to have disassociated to an extent in his childhood in order to be able to go through that because it's clearly something he's still battling with. And if you're dealing with arguments like this, and then on page 131, Molly narrates, the mosquitoes are said to have killed half of everyone who has ever lived, a lot more than angels have saved. My heart, like, doesn't even break for Molly as a murdered man. It breaks for Molly as an alive man. Because... He's so much more sheltered in his afterlife. And we learn that Molly has a name for God, and he calls him whoever. Like, he gives such a flippant, oh, it's whoever. But a capital whoever. A capital whoever. He talks about how it's so that no one gets offended. He gives a prayer, which I think is really interesting. He says, dear whoever, look after my family and give us money and no pain. Love me. Like, that's such a... It's obviously not a traditional prayer. Not a traditional prayer. No, shocker. Like Very kind of machine lottery Jesus mm-hmm. moment. Yes. Like if I pray to you and ask for what I want, the fact that I believe in you means you have to give it to me. Yeah. 
I think, though, what it really helped me realize was that I feel like in the first moon, we were in a space where Molly was on the cusp of even admitting there was a god. And now we're Mm. in the second book where he's not only claiming that there is a god, but he's naming the god whoever he's speaking to the god who he didn't think existed so thank you for bringing that up Bryn. that is really interesting and it also provides just adds so much context into who molly is and how he views both in life and after death i'm interested to know yes what do you have to bring us today that you found in the chapter that you had a question about yes okay thank you for asking I have a quote that I want to jump off to form a question. To form a question, yes. This is on page 149. Renee is talking about how he needs to go into the light. And Molly says, quote, She has not seen what you have seen, and she has not done what you have done. And she does not understand that if you step into the light, it is not forgetting that you fear, but the things that will step in there with you. End quote. So, Bryn, I want to ask you, what are the things that he's afraid will go in with him? I actually have a theory about what the light is now. It kind of just came to me at this moment. I think that the light is the soul going and being reincarnated. Because Renee talks about how Molly's soul has died 39 times. So his soul has, like, lived a new life 39 times. I think that when they step into the light, they forget about their past life, and they get reincarnated into a new life. And that's why Sina is, when you step into the light, you're forgetting, and you're becoming a new person, and you're forgetting what has happened to you in the past. I really like that theory. I think that also kind of, going back to your question, if if he's forgetting by entering this space, then it's not really about what he would bring in with him, whatever he brought in with him would leave him. Mm. So what it seems like to me is there's parts of his life that he doesn't want to forget. Oh, yeah. I don't know. That was kind of the way I interpreted it. I'm also thinking of Renee says that he has unpaid debts. I wonder if he's thinking that those unpaid debts will go in with him Mm. and will follow him into the next life. That's a really good point. Who knows? Bryn, hit me with your question. We found out that the prime minister was the man in multiple of these war crime photos. But we still have photos that we don't know what they are. What in the world could those be? (laughs) I really, I don't know. Well, we know that one other envelope is full of genitals. Yes. So those are, I believe, are the jacks. Mm-hmm. So then we still have king and ten. And then I think of the kings. I really don't know. I'm wondering. He's obviously very good at getting places that he shouldn't be in. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that he got photos of some secret government documents that can oh. change the world. He photographed different people together, like, in a meeting that is secret. And coming out of left field there a little bit. I feel like any prediction you would make would be out of left field. 
And now we have standby questions, Stand which are the same every time if you have not been here before or do not remember from last time. <laughs> and our first is, who do you think murdered Molly based on what we know up to this point this in the book? Point. There's so many. I know that Cena's like, there's these six people that are responsible for our deaths. So in a way, I'm like, wait, why are we like talking about a murder mystery when like we have six names? But... I feel like Cena also doesn't have all the information. My mom was listening to this podcast, and I was listening to it with her, and she said that – she said Dee Dee was suspicious. Oh. And I thought that was interesting. That's really interesting. I said Kuga was suspicious last time. I feel like it's too easy for it to be, there's six names, here are the killers. Yeah. I think it's going to kind of, like we said, come out of left field – Okay, well, then let me ask you this. Okay. Do you think he was murdered by a singular person? Mm. Do you think it was an organization? I think it's an organization. Wow. Okay. It was interesting to me that the prime minister wanted him alive, was like, I need to speak to yes. this man. He didn't know he was dead. And okay. I believe him. I kind of believe him, too. I am well, actually, yeah, I'm going to go against you on this. Who do you think? You, oh, you're going against, okay. I think... It might have been the vendetta of a single person. Okay. I'm like 50-50. No, I'm not hard on that either. Yeah. We need to have some nuance in this. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying it was one person who had a grudge against him that went and then killed him. I think it could have been a united decision oh. and then one person decided to carry it out. Oh. But I really wouldn't be floored if... I really don't know. Okay, and then our last standby is a quote or moment that's stuck with you, which you think is worthy bringing to our attention. Well, I was spending a lot of time during this chapter thinking about Molly's psychological development, mm -hmm. how he grew up, how that's contributed to his life, and then where he is now. And it seems to me that he had to disassociate to an extent in his line of work. I mean, on page 99, we have this vivid detail of him witnessing something horrific, and these people are calling out to him, and he says that he pretended not to understand what they were saying and just took the picture and walked away. Oh, yeah. How are you human and can do that is my question. I feel mm. like you have to compartmentalize. I feel like you have to disassociate to an extent. Yeah. And this shapes our understanding of him as a character. So I think I just kind of wanted to bring light to the fact that, to me, Molly is really shaping out to be a character that had a childhood where he was forced to disassociate from his sexuality, what it means to have a father that loves you, what it means to have parents that let you make your own decisions, etc. And then he took that, he took his disassociative skills and went into a vocation where he could use his trauma to his benefit. Oh, wow. I wonder what other parts of his life, like we've talked about his past, but I wonder of like his dad and his sexuality. I wonder what in his adult life he was disassociating from other than photography. 
I feel like with Didi and his relationship with him. Yeah, and a lot of his personal relationships. I also think that we can see it with maybe his addiction with gambling. Well, thank you for bringing that to my attention and our listeners' attention because I think that is so important. Switching gears quite a lot. Mine made me chuckle. So we talked about the demon on the hood of the car, and I, I think I stopped and I like, I giggled a little bit. This is the prime minister's demon, right? Yes. This is the prime minister's demon, and for some reason, I just picture him like a little dog, like sitting on the front of the hood. Such a creepy, but like, excited way, and it just makes me laugh so hard because he's just so excited to like, stir up things. When I think of him, I just can't help but laugh. I mean, he does kind of seem like a ride-along pooch. Yeah. <laughs> I just have such a vivid image in my head, especially when it first was, like, a demon riding on the hood of the car. I was like, there's a little dog just sitting right there waiting to to run around and to sniff everyone. And, yeah. So- I also felt that, honestly. <laughs> I feel I can't point out exact diction but i remember reading the description of this demon and just the way his movements were described his claws so that's what i want to leave everyone with with a little chuckle with a little giggle go back and read the description and see it through the lens (laughs) of a box terrier with the wind in his ears okay you guys that brings us to the end of this episode We have always said that you guys should leave us comments or tell us what you think. And it's been brought to my attention by my mom that we didn't have any place for you to do that. So you can email us. We will put an email in the podcast description. We would love to hear from you. And we are so excited to continue reading this book, which we are probably about halfway through. Wild. Until next time, you guys. 